what they did was they went into the bank and uh, had a vial, a vial of clear liquid. And they took the bank down, forced the guy to open the safe, and then they put them all in the back room where there's only one door out. They said, this is nitroglycerin, and we're setting it on the doorknob. You turn that doorknob, and you're all toast. This episode of the Snitch Podcast is dedicated to Vance Taylor. Vance was a police officer in Oregon, and he completed his career and retired from Boise Police Department. He passed away in 2009. And one of the reasons I bring him up is he's the reason this podcast even exists. He was an artful storyteller. The guy made you laugh like nobody could make you laugh. All his stories were funny. You know, they were never horrible. I think he told one shooting story that I could ever remember. We actually have his best friend on the podcast. And Jim's his name. Jim started his career in 1966 as a reserve police officer, and I think he got hired in 68. I'd have to go, we'd have to go back and listen to it, but I think it was 68. And he did a total of like 35 years five for the small community, five and a half for the small community, and another 29 and a half at a large metropolitan agency where he worked 21 of those years in investigations. We took my dad along for this because he and my dad are good friends. So you hear my dad pipe in on, on some of these conversations and, tell, and telling some of these stories, especially about Vance, who wasn't there to defend himself, but they're still pretty good. Also, he talks about some cases that you've probably heard of, no matter where you're at in the world. He talks about Tanya Harding and the Nancy Kerrigan assault. He talks about that case. He also talks about the Happy Face Killer, which was, if you hit Wikipedia, a serial killer back in the 90s that uh, two people actually got convicted for it but didn't do it. So he was instrumental in getting the correct person convicted for those series of crimes. Riley, you edited this thing. You were with us. What did you think? It was a blast. As you said, he was a cop for a really long time and started in 1966. So he had some really interesting stories there. It's more, it's 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 a historical episode. It's another one of those, like uh, Patient Zero was. Well, I think what I like about these guys that have been retired for a while is, yeah, there weren't body cams. Yeah, there weren't computers. I mean, shit, half the time they didn't even have a portable radio. They didn't They didn't even have body armor. That was something that came about through their careers. Right, or even like tape recorders. Like there's a very interesting portion about this where they talk about um, interviewing people and how interviewing people like took forever. And Jim's like, Jesus, why don't we just use a tape recorder? Like that's a novel idea, right? And now, I mean, now there's, we record everything on body cam or everything gets recorded on body cam, so... I mean, there's this like technological advancement that you see throughout the course of, you know, the past, what do we figure out this is, 50 years? 
Yeah. You know? From 66 to now. Yeah. That's a long time. Yeah. But these they're timeless stories that we've got from him and from the Patient Zero episode. And that's what we're looking for. And that's why the time that these things occurred or the date that these things occurred, they just don't matter because they're still classics. It was an awesome episode. It was a lot of fun to record. And it was actually a lot of fun to listen to and edit as well, hearing those again, because we recorded this around a year ago now. Yeah, so there wasn't any of the political things going on when we recorded it. Again, it's like it's timeless. There were some audio issues with it, correct? Yeah, that's right. There were a couple little hiccups with the audio, so we couldn't include those parts. It just it wasn't going to work. You you weren't going to be able to to hear it really if you were to to listen to those pieces. So, um everybody that has been listening, all two of you, we really appreciate it. No, really. I mean, there's more than two. Like we had some downloads in uh, France, Germany, Australia, which I think I knew who that person is. But it's been pretty cool. It has been. To see where people are downloading from. So thanks very much for listening. We think you guys are going to love this one because like we said, it's timeless. Here we go. Twenty-one, two Adam, twenty-two, two Adam, eleven, and two Adam, twelve, regarding a gunshot wound victim at three 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 North Fifty Eighth Street, three 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 North Fifty Eighth Street. Shots fired in the cafeteria at Thurston High School. There's always a rumor about the state policeman that got his thirty thirty out and shot at a stolen car going down the street was going to shoot at it, and then when he, as he pulled the rifle out, he shot his mic cord in two. <laughs> so, but I don't know whether that's true or not. <laughs> but that's uh, a good story. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've heard other stories when I went to the county where similar things have happened. To, Such as? Well, one of, one of the guys... One of the guys was uh, loading a getting a shotgun out and he shot destroyed his radio when he hit the trigger on it. Another guy uh, took a cap and ball pistol away from someone and proceeded to unload it through the windshield because <laughs> he didn't know how to handle it. So, Speaking of that, wasn't there an incident with a shotgun <laughs> at oh. the department? I think it was. <laughs> what was that? Yeah, well, Jim can tell you that story. <laughs> I wasn't there. <laughs> but a close dear friend was was there. <laughs> we had a guy named Sam. And Sam was about a 19-year-old. And he ran around with some of the, what we called troublemakers, probably mostly juveniles from 17 to 20 and he would come in. He, Sam wanted to be a good guy, so he would come in and talk. To, he really liked Vance, our friend. So he'd come in and, and talk to Vance and tell him what the, these people had been up to that's no good. Well, he, uh, 
came in one morning about half an hour before Vance was to get off shift, and he was carrying his briefcase, and he had an old Model 97 Winchester, which is a 12-gauge with a hammer, the exposed hammer to pull back. And it had been in its apartment for years, and he took, walked in with his bag, dropped the bag on the floor, and then set the shotgun down butt first on the table, and it went off. <laughs> and it went through the roof of the police department. The, the fire volunteer fire department meeting hall was right above it. <laughs> went through the floor of the, of the meeting hall, and went up, and they discovered after they had their next fire that it actually damaged the plectron system that alerted all firemen to <laughs> the pay, carry pagers on their belts. Only about half of them got the message. And so now I guess they have a memorial room that's the uh, Vance Firearms Room where they go to <laughs> unload the guns. Do they yeah. really? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> Vance was a good source of fun, wasn't he? He was. Yes, yeah. he was. He always kept things interesting. <laughs> One thing he did was uh, we had getting a new car in the police department was a big deal. And Vance worked a late shift, and the car was finally ready to go on that shift. So he takes it down and runs it through the car wash knocked every overhead light off the car that was on it <laughs> and had to drive it back, park it, and then somebody else got to drive it first. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one more on him was was that uh, it was back when there was still two ways going down Main Street. Oh, right. And I was coming in, he was going out from the station, and as I passed him, I I thought to myself, I don't remember us having a car with three bubblegum machines on top of it. You know, three of the big bulky sirens. Well, as it goes by, we had to wear helmets at that time. And he set his helmet up there, so he had to drive it up and down the road with the helmet sitting on top of his police car. <laughs> but that was a lot of fun. It was. Yeah. How did you get from, or how and why did you, how did you get from to where you ended up working at? Well, I was five years, five years, five, five units short of my college degree from George Fox. So some, uh, one of my professors got a hold of me and said, if you finish this class, I'll give you your, your credits that you need to be out. And uh, so when I, I finished that and then I, went up and applied at, at the county sheriff's office because at that time the sheriff's office was one of only two departments in the country that were hiring college graduates only. They, if you didn't have a graduate, not a graduate degree, but a, a bachelor degree or so, they wouldn't hire you. So I went and applied and by that time I had five years on. And I, took me into the next academy in the September of 72 or 3, one of the two. I went through the academy again <laughs> and uh, ended up up there working graveyard shift. For how long until you became a detective? Mm -hmm. 
you got to understand that uh, you're not. You one day you're a detective, another day you could be something else because uh -huh. they formed uh, units. We had we had the unit that ran the boats on the river. We had the river patrol. We had uh, um, we had a special SED unit, and that's the first unit I w went to work for where I was working plain clothes. And they had the narcotics unit, robbery unit, homicide unit. And my goal was always to get to the homicide unit because I wanted to do that kind of stuff. But it took a while. We didn't have a sergeant's exam for 15 years after I got there just because of political maneuvering between the city and the county. Oh, okay. So... I don't know. Seventy. I remember getting out of of uh, the SCD unit, which was a stolen property unit. We went undercover and bought stolen property from people, and we did that. And then we had a big sting operation where we arrested like 120 some people, and that was quite a night. But the uh, the one from that one. I'll be back to patrol for a while. So you same badge, same everything. You're just where you worked, you know, was what they were specialized units, but they transferred people in and out a lot. So that's my entrance into detectives. Okay. Just, I think I got a letter when I when I quit or retired because I got a private investigator's license and ran a business for about five years. And this letter was from the sheriff's office and I'd worked there for 29 and a half years, or almost 20, almost 30. And 21 of those, those years were spent in some investigative unit. And the patrol was the rest of the nine. I did nine years in patrol. All the rest was in the investigations, including internal affairs, which was real fun. The difference between working internal affairs and working uh, crooks lie to you, and they get away with it sometimes. But if you're an officer and you lie to me when I'm working internal affairs, that could be grounds for dismissal. So it actually is easier because people are more inclined to tell the truth to try to save their jobs right. and stuff. So uh, it, it was kind of fun. I mean, I can relate several stories about things that happened in internal affairs that were just out of this world. One was one of the deputies. I get a phone call about from a kid that says, I have several piercings, and I saw Officer So-and-So work the max line, and he said, I was with my girlfriend, and I was taking her down across, and I have several piercings in my face. And he said, but what really bothered me about the officer was he was writing down every name of every Hispanic person that got on the train, on the max line. And this deputy that he was referring to worked the max line 
That was his job. So he was, he said, and the, the other thing is I just don't think it's right that he takes down the, the, uh, the names of the just Hispanics and not anybody else. And then he says, and then when uh, we were coming back, I rode back with him. He, he was on the same train I was coming back from Portland. And I have several piercings in my face. And he asked me if I'd had a terrible fishing accident. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so I said, well, I'll check and see. So I got a hold of the deputy. And he had been taking down people's names because there had been a double homicide in, out in East County, out by... And the two suspects were two Hispanic males. So he was doing his job. He was... It, he was working while the homicides were going on, so he was he was doing his diligence to see if there was anybody in getting on the train that might match up with the investigation. And I, he, I said, "That's fine." And what about the uh, fishing accident? And he said, "No, no, no, no." He said, "I didn't ask him if he had a terrible fishing accident. I asked him if he <clears throat> fell face first into his tackle box." <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs> so I had to write the guy a letter saying that his, we appreciated his complaint, <clears throat> but it didn't rise to the level of requiring investigation. <laughs> so you get things like that that are, that are fun. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we were, we were going to ask you about uh, Ed. Uh, just uh, you, 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 both of you actually were in contact with him for your entire careers, I think. And like what an influence he was and what yeah. stories you might have about him. I don't know anything about him. You so don't? I, no. Didn't Ed have a, one of the try to escape on him or did escape on him and he tripped on the fire, the stairway outside of the police department there? So the guy was there that night. So Richard. Richard, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Got drunk. Uh, and I know it. Let me think. He, yeah, he he'd been drinking. He'd gone to Vietnam for a while, and he was in the army. And they made a tunnel rat out of him to go into the tunnels and flush out the Viet Cong. So he uh, he grew up a lot when he was in the service. He didn't fight us so much, and he he had to appreciate. He's five feet two, maybe. Yeah, he's a little guy. Five feet two, and he's he's uh, wiry, and uh, but he fights every time you arrest him. And so somebody arrested him for something that night, and was doing the impossible. He was going along with it. Held out his hands to be cuffed. Didn't give anybody any problems. So we cuffed him in front. He goes and the entrance to. PD at that time was a railing into the jail, a railing that went down and blocked the sidewalk, and you'd go down six steps or so, and then it threw a door to get in. He saw those steps when he got out of the patrol car, but he's giving himself up. He's happy, so he puts his hands on the railing and vaults the railing and goes six feet down. He lands flat on his face, and he rolls over, and it groans and that's it. I mean, he gets beat up worse 
the night he gave up than he ever got beat up or got arrested. <laughs> Ed, Ed's probably the reason that I ended up being a policeman. My football coach and I were out walking around one night and didn't know what I was going to do when I got out of school. But we'd stop by the PD to see if they had a reserve program. And I met Ed that time and immediately was pro-policeman. He was anxious to get somebody else there and vouched for me for Chief Hawkins. And and the next thing I know, I ended up I'm riding in a police car. And I had a 38 Special. I said, that's good enough. And I had that in my pocket. And uh, we were going checking alleys, and I was staying out late, and my wife was getting mad at me. And, and uh, so uh, Ed was a big influence. He, he was taught me how to shoot a pistol, which I had never regretted. And uh, he was... He was a real big influence, as I'm sure he was with Dave, too. He was, yes. Yeah. The uh, only thing I can remember negative about Ed was he was an old-school policeman where if I'm going to interview you, I say, what's your name? You tell me and write it down. Then I think of a question I want to ask you, so I write that question down. Then I read it to you, and I write your answer down verbatim. <laughs> and I didn't see that again. I'm thinking at the time when I first saw that, and thinking, there's got to be a better way to do an interview because you're sitting there for six hours being interviewed when you could get it done if we did it by recording. So... I didn't see any tape recorders at the Newburgh PD when I started. But Ed, he was quite a guy. He, re he really was into shooting. I think that was his favorite thing to do. Yeah, I remember all the trophies that we had for the uh, shooting matches that uh, went through over the years there. Thank you. You and Vance and uh, Ed were the top shooters of the department for quite a long time. Yeah. Well, Lonnie was another one that was pretty, yes. pretty handy. Yeah. I always thought Ed's uh, police, or the reserve academy that they had at the time, that was, I thought, better training at the time that I got the academy. <laughs> I'm trying to think, you know, Ed had a real thing about checking businesses. He'd go by and had a handheld spotlight, and he'd, he'd use that thing. And I'm sure you went through that, too. Oh, yes. But I can remember, I'm 23 years old. I'm the only, realize I'm the only policeman on in northern, in northern county for a long ways. And you can't help but be a little scared, you know. You, you hope that you can handle anything that comes up, but you, you don't know. And you're two thirty in the morning. You're half asleep, and you're going with this thing. And I remember one day I went behind the theater. Yeah. And the porch out back where they loaded all the stuff was about the highest of window in the police car. And I was flashing the light, and all of a sudden there's this huge crash and this scream. 
and I think I hit the gas. I can't remember. But I took off, and what it was was a cat was in the garbage can, and it tipped the garbage can over when I frightened it, and it turned, stepped on the gas, I guess. <laughs> but it was that, and going into J.C. Penney's, where I had actually worked as a salesman at J.C. Penney going, I was going to college, and I went in there and, and uh, walked up these steps with a flashlight. They'd left their back door open. And walked up and actually was confronted by a guy with a flashlight and a gun until I realized it was a full-length mirror I was looking at. <laughs> and then I opened the door in there and it had a bunch of mannequins stored in there and that was a little bit of a shock. And I had worked there. I knew that stuff was there, but it, it still scared me. You guys did stuff back then by yourselves that like you absolutely don't do now by yourself you know like building searches and arresting yeah. people by yourselves and they grew up fast <laughs> yeah you just didn't you know or you're if you're scared of things you're, <laughs> you got over that quick but there were some of those things we did in that we didn't know were bad until we got to older or, or older or better or training. To another department <laughs> yeah i remember when were you down there when tom went crazy no i was not no we went this guy was uh he's a town drunk and he had a and this was a double a real almost a triple lesson for me to learn he had a son that was probably 30 years old and the son was mentally off and he'd ride his bike around town all the time tom tom jr yeah tom jr and yeah. and uh one night, Tom Sr. gets all drunk up and won't let his wife or his kid leave, his daughter leave, but he'd let the, the son come and go. But he had a shotgun and he was holding, for whatever reason, he was holding the, the, uh, the uh, wife and the daughter as hostage. And the kid would come up to us and say, He's doing that, doing that, and won't let the leave and everything. He's got a shotgun, and Ed got really excited, started calling out the troops, and I get called, and we talked to this crazy guy, big mistake, and we say, go in and check, and if the shotgun's far enough away from the guy, and I gave him four feet or five feet or whatever. You come out and nod yes, and we'll go take it away from him. But if you say no, we won't do it. He comes in, comes back, and nods his head the right way. It's okay. I went around the corner, and he's sitting like where you're sitting. Shotgun's right here. <laughs> and I'm coming in from that side. And I did, all I could see when I went in there was a shotgun, so I just dove at the shotgun and grabbed it with two hands, and right behind me was Vance, and he grabbed Tom, and it was all over. But I learned that never trust a crazy guy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've had similar things happen in the county, which were, uh, you know, you, you learned your lesson. Like I said, well, that would have been like prior to 72, right? Because you went to county in 72, so yeah, like tactics have changed a bit. So like, don't send a, a crazy guy inside. 
Well, the biggest difference, the biggest difference between going to work for Madison County and going to work for well, one of the big differences is pay. The second big difference was you go to a call, you got five guys covering you. You know, in the early days when I started at Madison County, they had 200, I think I was number, number two, 234 deputies there. And, and it, you get, uh, you get a family beef call, it's in your district, but somebody might be closer. You might be the third car there, but you still got to handle it because they're not going to do your work for you. But, right. But it was a matter of so many policemen that we just weren't used to that. And you did it yourself and you didn't do it. Yeah. Didn't uh, you in advance try to outrun a state police officer one time down in this area? <laughs> <laughs> We're headed... I I'm got some time off, and I'm at county, but Vance for a short time was on the state police, but he never went past probationary period. He ended up going back to, well, we were going to go fishing, so I drove down to where he was stationed, and we drove up to uh, one of the lakes up there, and we see a police car coming, and he says, I know that's Jerry. And I said, well, don't slow down for Jerry. It doesn't matter. So we go by him, and... And we look, and sure enough, he hits the lights, and he's making the waiting to make a U-turn to come and get us. So we just took off, <laughs> and and uh, we drove up the road about three miles, and found a place where where they'd piled a bunch of gravel. The highway department had, and you've seen them big piles yeah. of gravel. Drove down there about a quarter of a mile, turned around, and waited for him because here he came, and. Uh, he said, gee, Jerry, we thought you'd see that it was us, you know, and he says, don't ever do that again. <laughs> and and they drove off. They wouldn't talk to us. He just drove off. And uh, Vance, he, Jerry worked out, Vance worked out, but there was one unit. So when they had a unit meeting, they all got together. And they had an upcoming unit. And that was the worst fishing trip we ever went on because he was afraid he's going to get fired when we got back. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, I, he was really scared to death. And uh, when uh, he goes to the meeting, he goes up and says, Jerry, I, I really thought you saw that it was me. And he says, I'll get even with you if it's the last thing I ever do. <laughs> so it was off the hook, but yeah. <laughs> We did try to do that. That's why I, I worked several homicides, and I had a call from one of the ladies that worked in our office, and she wanted to write a book about this particular homicide. <clears throat> and I said, well, I'll help you if the family is okay with it. If the family isn't okay with it, I won't help you. I called, and they said, well, we just soon let it rest. Went back and told this lady, "Sorry, yeah, can't help you." So, well, when did you? What year did you retire? Two thousand three. And you retired in what? What do we say it was, Dad? Two thousand four. Somewhere in there. Yeah. Okay. June, June of two thousand. I was. Uh, well, I ended up being a lieutenant for about a year and a half, and that was. Worst job I ever had. Why is that? Too much paperwork. <laughs> not, not enough. 
getting your hands dirty. Wasn't very fun. No, <laughs> no, no. And uh, it was, I had, when I was a sergeant, that was the most fun time. So I ran detectives for a while, and then I set up the, uh, they always give Bernie credit for this, but I set up the uh, major crimes team for East County. So what did that major crimes team entail, and what, what like, what kind of crimes it was, did you uh, take care of? It's called the major crimes team, shootings, uh, homicides. When I left the unit, we had 18 or 19 cases, we cleared them all, and, uh, I went from there, I think, might have been internal affairs, can't remember, but it was, we had a, officers from our department, we had officers from the state police, and we had officers from Troutdale, but the, the, the theory behind it was, you, you don't just, investigate it with your two detectives that you've got assigned to it with the sheriff's office. You get a big unit out there and get a lot of information a lot at a bigger hurry. And you'd have more people because none of our detectives units would have more than one or two people in homicide. So what, like um, you said, 18 or 19 cases you guys cleared, like which, are there some memorable ones? Well, one of them was a, was a, lady who befriended a uh, convict. The convict got out of jail, went to live with this lady who was about five feet tall and five feet wide. And when this con saw what she looked like, he rapidly fell in love with some young gal. So that didn't make the lady he'd been corresponding with very happy. So she got her gun and went out and and uh, shot about three or four times at the girlfriend. And then uh, she was walking back up to where she parked her car, the responding officers got there and she took a shot at one of them. And, oh. and that was the end of it. But, but uh, I remember that one, but that was, that was pretty cut and dried. I, I, I've worked some homicide cases that, that you would probably remember uh, one was a thing called a happy face killer. Oh, right, yeah. And uh, we worked that. He'd killed. It's the one that he wrote on the walls and stuff. And, and uh, we, our department had actually, along with the state police, had arrested two people for it, which turned out to be the lady that he, they arrested was just trying to plant evidence on her drunken boyfriend to get him out of her life. And... Uh, it just didn't work, and then this note pops up, I think Livingston, Montana, on a wall. It said, two people are arrested for something I did and all that. So we called up there. They took pictures of the writing on the wall for us and sent us back down, and it, it was quite a to-do. And then we got this guy who confessed to killing, but he wrote a letter to the Oregonian, one was the Oregonian, one was the Washington County Courts, who said, I killed so many people and and this kind of stuff. And this is number one, this is number two, this is number three. So they caught, and then he wrote a letter to his brother, and I think that's partly what helped get him caught, 
in up there, but we still had a problem with our case because he had he's claiming that he killed the girl in Multnomah County, but we already had the two people in jail and in the penitentiary they'd been convicted of it. So we, the big question was how do we prove that he did it and not these other people? Well, the other people had made some ridiculous claims of the lady had and it didn't work out, it, it, something was wrong. So we took this uh, guy named uh, Jesperson, took him for a ride and, and uh, he pointed out to my partner where he threw the victim's purse. And this was like five years after the murder, all this other stuff that transpired in that time. And uh, I remember, I'll never forget sitting at a spaghetti dinner and they got done uh, searching the area. They took like a hundred explorer scouts and searched this area for for uh, the purse. And they came in and they said they didn't find anything. So my partner was just about ready to write that this Jesperson's full of hot air. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And I said to him, I said, how deep did they go? Did they just, did they cut anything down or did they just search through it? He said, well, they just searched through it. And I said, can't do that. You had to go back and tell them to go five inches below the surface and take it all out. And when they did, they found her ID card and a bunch of stuff that would be from a woman's purse. And uh, on the way to where the body was found, nobody could have told us where that was except Who's up that the, guy? The guy who killed her. Yeah. So for, for Riley that doesn't know what the Happy Face Killer is, can you tell him? Uh, Happy Face. He, he got the name Happy Face because he wrote letters to the Oregonian and to the cohorts. And he always put a little smiley. Remember the yellow buttons? Yeah. With the smile. Well, he'd draw a yellow button. And, and then he had one thing that he had done is he'd written a thing and told where everything where he had killed eight people and I confirmed all eight of them that they either had a case open case or they found a body at that that spot so it was so we still had a state police detective that wanted to think that they had the right people in jail so this guy like the the you've got two people there's two people convicted of this crime and then he wants to take credit for it because he did it yeah yeah he was he was he was kind of upset that they were taking the blame for it i mean he he described this guy he's six foot eight or nine he's a huge guy he just get mad he's a truck driver and he just get mad at he insulted him. He'd, he'd have sex with the woman, and if she laughed or had anything, he'd fly into a rage and beat him to death and then dump him. And uh, there was a sheriff from Iowa after this was all done, and Jesperson's in jail, and they'd let, there's no, no real process for letting people out of jail unless your governor pardons them. I guess that's one way you could do it. but. They just turned these guys loose, the two that were in there that they'd arrested earlier. And that was how they handled it. But 
we had the right guy. And I lost my train of thought, didn't I? No, no, you're, that's exactly what I yeah. asked you. So you said that was one of the cases that I might remember. What's another one? Mm. Tanya Harding? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think that I helped solve that case with the help of 3,000 FBI agents. <laughs> <laughs> well, the FBI is overrated. We know that. Yeah. So what you, would you do? Well, I was assigned. I get a call in the middle of the night from my sergeant, and he says, at 8 o'clock, be down at the, uh, of course, the news had broke that she, Kerrigan had got hit by a, some, somebody hit her. I was kind of on our representative in that case. My partner sat in on an interview with Tanya Harding, her lawyer, and an a FBI agent named Jim. They interviewed her for 10 hours and uh, ended up charging her with some... I think it was a felony, but it wasn't much. But there was no doubt in anybody's mind that she knew what was going on the whole time. So how did you, how did you, um, did, did the guy that hit Kerrigan, did he get arrested and then give the other people up? Is that what happened? No, it didn't quite happen that way. It, you have to remember that Tucker Carlson, you know who he is? broadcaster on uh, oh, okay. yep. on uh, Fox News. Yeah. He wrote a book called Ship of Fools. Okay. That's what you had here, this bunch of idiots. And they had that bodyguard, the big heavy set bodyguard that's picture was in the paper, you know, escorting Tanya through the airport. When we were doing grand jury on the case, I, I signed all the arrest warrants for the, the arrest warrants for this guy who uh, you're talking about and his cousin, a Smith guy down there. <laughs> we were going to grand jury on the case and the bodyguard was talking to his, his attorney. And it was at the Marriott Hotel because they had grand jury down there because all the press was up at the, the courthouse trying to get find the people who were working on it. And so we rented, and they were staying at the Marriott. So in the morning, they'd get up and rush up to the courthouse. We'd take our business down to the Marriott and get it done. And uh, walked in there with an Oregonian, and Mark's in there talking to his attorney. And I said, Counselor, if you want to talk to your attorney without me present, I'll be happy to step out in the hallway. He said, no, no, don't bother. He says, Mark's confessed to so many people the Pope can't get him out of this one. <laughs> <laughs> so, then about 10 minutes after that, my partner comes in, the same thing, gives him a newspaper and says, can I have your autograph? <laughs> and I'd done the same thing and we got his autograph, but I've since lost the paper, so I know. <laughs> <clears throat> so then how do you track that person to... I mean, like he, so he gave up Tanya? Is that what? They're, most of them were, no, Tanya, Tanya, um, I think she got found guilty of lying. And, and don't quote me on this, I'm not sure, but she ended up getting some Mickey Mouse charges involving lying to the FBI or something. Oh, okay. But <clears throat> we found, a, <clears throat> somebody found, not me, 
somebody found uh, some writing on the paper in the garbage by a, a saloon or a bar downtown, and it it had uh, all the directions and times of Nancy Kerrigan's practice time at Kent Pavilion in Boston or someplace. And uh, so he, this is stamp guy, borrows his girlfriend's credit card and flies back to Boston. Tony Cantarina was what it was. And by the time he got there, she had gone to, she had gone all the way back to Detroit to be in the, the finals for who was going to represent the U.S. in the Olympics. So he missed her back there, so he had to use the credit card to come back. And uh, he came back, went to Detroit, hit her, and then came back to Arizona, I think, was where it was. But they were just telling on each other like crazy. Wow. It, was, it was not a hard case. <laughs> but Tanya was one that um, made it hard by, by not wanting to admit her part. But the handwriting on that that piece of uh, that was found the paper that was found by the saloon uh, was her handwriting. We submitted it, and it was really close to her handwriting. So oh, really? She knew. So she was totally like in on it. Oh yeah, she was. Okay. But she won't to this day. She won't. She won't tell you she did. Oh, one thing we did at was was. Uh, we covered the first bank robbery, first national bank robbery, first time there'd ever been a bank robbery in, in and I still remember that the crooks got out $186,000. No kidding. Out of the bank. What they did was they went into the bank and uh, had a vial, a vial of clear liquid. And they took the bank down forced a guy to open the safe and then they put them all in the back room where there's only one door out. They said, this is nitroglycerin and we're setting it on the doorknob. You turn that doorknob and you're all toast. And I don't know how, I don't remember how it was found or how they got out of the room, but they got out of the room and that was my introduction to the FBI because the FBI came down and started working work in the case but that's a lot of money even for like because now you just get drawer money <laughs> you don't usually get safe money <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I had a couple run-ins with the FBI one was I was working patrol and I had a county and I had a recruit with me but the recruiter had his own car and my job was just to shadow him and when it, he got a call, I'd cover him to see how he was doing. Well, we'd had a series of bank robberies. Anyway, we get a call that, that the bank's been robbed, or wasn't robbed, but somebody came in who had robbed it before, and they recognized him, and he took off running. So I had a picture taken of the previous bank robbery of this guy, and I gave it to my recruit, and I said, go over to the motel, show it to the owner of the motel, and see if he knows him. So I go in and interview the teller, get the story, and the FBI is not there yet. So I, about the time I come out, my recruit drives up to me and says, yeah, I've got the name, the address, and the phone number. They moved out last week. He knew the guy. 
So a typical recruit, he knows he's got the whole case sitting right in his hands. You know, he's got it made. But the bank robbery alarm at 82nd and uh, Division goes off of the first national bank. And everybody, he takes off to go catch the guy. Well, you're too late if you by that time. Right. You're gone. And so I drive down to the first national bank and I say, see a guy sitting in a car and obviously an FBI agent responding to the call. I says, is Bart here? And he was the FBI officer that was in charge of that series of robberies. And uh, he said, uh, no, he's on his way. And I said, when he gets here, you tell him if he wants the name, the address, the telephone number of the guy that tried that robbed his bank, get a hold of McNally from the county and I'll tell him. And I drove off. <laughs> and then and I go back to the first bank and a good friend of mine, he's out standing in the rain talking to the same teller. That is what the guy was doing was he'd rob a bank by mall 205, go in and buy a change of clothes, walk out to the bus at the end of it and take the bus home. Well, I drove up Stan and I said, Stan, if you want to know, when you want to know the name and the address and the telephone number of the guy who robbed, tried to rob this bank, I'll be inside having a cup of coffee, okay? And he comes walking in all mad at me because I didn't tell him when I was outside and he was standing in the rain. I thought it was great. <laughs> <laughs> but they, we, we gave the information to our detectives, the unit, that, and they went out and arrested the guy at a used car dealership making a car payment. Went to his house. They said, he's no, he's down making a payment. You know, he had a toy gun and a satchel, a bunch of money. How many banks did he do? I don't know. I think it was probably four or five. But they... Uh, he did it with a toy, toy gun? Toy gun, <laughs> yeah. But he, he was one of them that got caught partly by the die packs going off. Oh. That's another FBI story. You like FBI stories? Oh, I love them. <laughs> we, <laughs> my buddy Pete and I are working night detectives, and I worked that for several years. And we we find out that there's a uh, had been a robbery at bank robbery at, and so we're working away, and it's the night before Thanksgiving, and we get a call from just north in Washington on the coast. And they, the guy says, hey, I've got a guy in here who says he robbed a bank and, and he wants to give himself up and he's covered with kind of dye stuff. So we said, okay, we'll come get him because we knew about the robbery. So we we drive to uh, out highway and it's storming. It's storming like you can't believe the wind. You know, when you drive through a storm, the gusts of wind that hit the car and you can feel them. Yeah. It's that way. And we get onto the bridge and we're in one lane. And the next thing you know, you're in another lane and you don't remember changing. You go up by oh, the waves are breaking over the over the highway. Yeah. It's a storm and so bad. So I get up. We'll get the guy to sign a waiver of extradition in my notebook and put him in the back seat of the car and interview him all the way back through the storm. 6.30 in the morning, Thanksgiving Day, we're going through a dumpster, getting out the dyed pack. And we get back and got all this stuff in the middle of the desk. And my buddy Pete says, 
<clears throat> why don't we just go home and enjoy dinner and come in tomorrow night and do the reports? And I said, that's fine with me. And he calls me the next morning and says, read the Oregonian. And the Oregonian says, the FBI announces the arrest of such and such for the bank robbery. And so, uh, they wouldn't even go get him. There is a dark side to our profession, and that is that it can screw you up really mentally. I've, I don't know how many you've seen, but I've seen probably four or five officers that just give it up. Yes. You know, and and uh, and it, uh, not necessarily things that happen on the job. It's always there's always some something going on. Yeah, it's a very very hard. Uh profession and it uh, leaves a lot of scars on you. Well, you know, if it wasn't for the two of you and Vance, you know, we, I mean, I, I mean, I grew up on your guys' stories and uh, that's really why I wanted to talk to you, both of you. Yeah. And, uh, or we wanted to talk to both of you, but of course he, he didn't grow up on your stories, but, <laughs> but, you know, I think it's important that, you know, some of this stuff gets told and, is memorialized and yeah and uh i remember one more story about ed he i told you he was the one that taught us to use the spotlights right right and there was a what was the name of that grocery store that was out bargain market bargain, bargain city bargain city market ed comes around and and uh sees a guy messing with something or sees a something that's different than the night before and spice puts his light in there and there's a hole in the wall a burglar has gotten in and they had a lean-to shed out back where they stored crates and boxes and just miscellaneous junk that they didn't want in the store well this burglar had uh kind of got himself a pretty good sized hole i don't think he'd got in yet ed went around the corner and he saw him and figured out where he was at and ordered him to come out and he wouldn't come out and there was a big pile of wood like firewood on the side so he took a 12 gauge and fired around into the wood and the guy oops came out and uh they cuffed him up and uh well ed's taking his notes trying to talk to the guy he takes off running and Maury just sticks his foot out and trips him. And he's cuffed in back. And he just goes right into the gravel and stuff. And uh, so the next, he books him and stuff. And the next day, we're out there. And I don't know if this was after I was, I was the first detective they ever called detective in, in Newburgh. And they... I think we were out there and went out to see if there was anything in the daylight. And we found where the guy came out from a 22 loaded revolver or an automatic and a shell had jammed and was bent. No kidding. So, you know, Ed's lucky that, because I doubt if he was hiding, he probably was behind the car, but it would have been pretty bad. Could have been. Wow. But, I remember finding the gun laying laying on the boards would go this way and then the outside to come down and he had it laid up there. Put it out of sight and hope nobody find it. What was his I mean, so if he was uh was he a captain in sixty six, six or sixty eight? 
No. He was a senior patrolman or a sergeant. I don't think he was ever a sergeant, was he? I think he went right from being head to being captain, right? Yeah. <laughs> so was he, was he in the military prior to that, or he just was always yeah, a cop? he was in the Korean okay. conflict until he got wounded, I think. I didn't know he was ever in the military. We never talked about it. Yeah, he was uh, he was a mortar person, the way I understood it, and he, uh, they zeroed in on his positions, and he spent a long time in the hospital after that. Hmm. I just remember, I mean, I don't know how old I was, but I thought he was old then. You know, he didn't <laughs> die that long ago. He must have been ancient. Yeah. He, he <laughs> talked old. He did, Everything. Yes. If you if you would go back, it's it's what I imagined a police officer would be like in the thirties. That's true. Yeah. In 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 the way he talked to people, he was real slow on keeping up with the times, as far as using terminology that doesn't speak well <laughs> or sit well with the public. Yeah, he was well. He was. I always thought he was good. You know, getting things. Department trained in different things, but yes, he was kind of backwards on a lot of things too. Yeah. His thinking was kind of in the past instead of where in the current times. Well, one thing you know about that you got to know about Ed is that they have on the holsters what they call a safety strap. You know that, right? I it was never fastened. <laughs> never. Yeah, I can remember some night nightmare type things happening with my gun. <laughs> I remember fighting with or Lonnie. Got, we got in a fight with. Him. Yes. And Lonnie was mainly Lonnie and Lonnie, I think. And uh, my contribution to the fight was to find get Lonnie's gun that went scattered across the porch and get it out of. Where nobody could reach it. He he subscribed to Ed's. He's he's uranium, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the old Jordan holsters. Yeah. But Ed Ed had a big heart. But he liked his his humor was when Vance and Cheryl were married, they'd go over to visit him and he'd offer Vance a cigar knowing full well that Cheryl wouldn't like it. <laughs> then he'd turn right around and offer Cheryl the cigar. <laughs> and every, every time he'd answer the door at home, he'd have a gun in his pocket. He would, yes, a little thirty-eight. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I have an interesting story, a funny story. This is just plain fun. We had a period of time in the county when we had not enough police cars to go over. To, so if you work in graveyard, you had to wait till swing shift came in. You could put out a few graveyard cars, but as the swing shift came in, then the rest of the graveyard could go. Well, we had to double up on people for the first hour or two. So I was driving one night, and I was with this guy who liked to, he was a, he's a gun nut. I'll just leave it at that. But he... Uh, like to kill possums <laughs> and uh, so I got the shotgun and I loaded the first three shells into it were double up buck and this is two, 12 in the morning or 1 in the morning and this fat possum walks out 
as if I'd ordered it. Walks out, <laughs> across the, the Jim says, "Hit the hit the hit the shotgun, hit the shotgun." So I hit the. He jumps out, cranks one in, shoots it to Possum. The Possum stands there, looks at him, huh? You know, then starts walking off. He's, he's, he's incredulous. He just can't believe he missed his Possum at thirty feet. You know, and so he cranks another round in, which is. The way I put it in was the second round of bucks of uh, what do you call it? Uh, slugs or slugs? Yeah, I'd be the, and he fires another round and possum stops, looks back at him, <laughs> wanders off into the brush. And by this time, Jim just can't believe that it's not possible that he missed that <laughs> thing twice. And I would have got away with it totally, except that he jammed the. Second slug, and when he fired, he jammed the gun up. So he, we had to drive down the river patrol and clear the weapons. And uh, he said he'd get even with me. It's the last thing he had to do. <laughs> and he hasn't, and I've seen him several times. <laughs> uh, I'll never forget the look on that possum's face, so that was funny. Well, he's the same guy. That I stopped a car from Montana one time, and he had a station wagon, and the entire back end of the station wagon was a load of fireworks from Montana, all the good stuff. And I wrote him out of property. I said, "I know you're, you know, didn't know this, but I still have to do something." He said, "Well, take them. I don't want them if they're illegal. I don't want to get in trouble." So I wrote him a receipt for the fireworks. And uh, gave it to him, and, and uh, then I told, saw Jim, the same guy that shot at the possum. I said, okay, "Now what am I going to do with these? They won't want me to put them in property because they're explosive." Explosive. Yeah. He said, "I'll take care of it." <laughs> I went down to the river and shot every one of them off the same night. Then <laughs> <laughs> he got a hold of my thing and said, "Disposed of." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I, I learned another lesson in county. It's illegal to, to go to another state and buy more than a certain amount of whiskey and bring it back. I caught a guy one night that had about four to five jugs of whiskey. I said, where'd you get all that? And he said, I just brought it back from Reno. So I issued him a ticket. Went back and you thought I killed my mother. <laughs> the way these guys got on me. We do that every weekend. What in the hell are you doing that for? <laughs> and so I said, okay, I learned. I learned. <laughs> Don't do that. I, I I was too nice a guy, I guess, because I, I never got into that many fights or anything, but... but uh, and I was too... I, I'd help people out when they needed... There's two patrolmen from... Portland. They come by and they say, we got this guy. He's drunk, but we're patrol. We're not traffic and our traffic units are all tied up. So could you take him off our hands? Looked and the guy was a drunker and a skunk. So I said, okay. So I took him. A breathalyzer was down at, right down the courthouse. So I put this guy in the back of my car and I go down there. And he throws up in the back of my car. 
I mean, it's a mess. I get down there and, and uh, started to get out of the car and this young guy says, hey, wait a minute, I see what your problem is. And I have a, I'm more, I have some good gloves for this. So he gets the guy out for me and, and takes him, walks with me up to the, the breathalyzer on the eighth floor. And it turns around and he's cuffed behind him and he, this officer standing here in front of him, I'm about where you are. He just hauls off and spits vomit in the officer's face. And I had one of those metal clipboards that are aluminum real light, I still have it. And I just used it like a baseball bat. And I swung <laughs> it and hit him right across the face and knocked him over a chair and into the wall. <laughs> and then the guy said, well, I got to go. <laughs> and he's gone. And to this day, I don't know who he was. And, uh, all I got out of the other guy was yes, sir, no, sir, for the rest of the night. So I know exactly why he did what he did. Yeah. Uh, we couldn't do that nowadays, though. No. <laughs> the Snitch Podcast is dedicated to preserving the verbal stories of modern-day police officers your lives and your own words. If you are interested in being a part of this multimedia project, please contact us at thesnitchpodcast at gmail.com.